Well, good morning, church. Glad you are here this morning. I know we have several out today. Either they're Cracker Christmas or they're Georgia Bulldog fans. I'm not sure which one they are, but we're glad that you are here this morning. And uh, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn with me to the book of John. John chapter 6 is where we're going to be this morning. And John, as we've kind of walked through John, what we've, what we've been unpacking is that Jesus kind of, in the middle of chapter 5, he's, he's shifted away from these one-on-one moments, these one-on-one conversations, and now we're in large conversations. And hopefully what we've seen is that Jesus, since middle of John chapter 5, has really been wanting the crowd to embrace who he is. Not just know who he is, but to embrace that. And so he begins by encouraging them to embrace the fact that he is God, that he has come from heaven, to, to embrace the fact that he is life changer. He's the only one that can change someone's soul and their life and their eternity, but also to embrace the fact that Drew talked about a couple weeks ago that he is ultimately the provider. He is our provision. And then last week we saw that Jesus really wanted the crowd to begin to embrace the idea that he is the only one who can fully and finally satisfy the cravings of our soul. Do you believe that the church this morning? So you say amen to that? You really believe that Jesus is the only one who can fully and finally satisfy the cravings of your soul? Jesus wanted them to embrace that. Now, what, how did he present that? Well, he told them a couple of things last week. First of all, he said, I have come from heaven and I am the bread of life. Meaning that I am the only one who can satisfy the cravings of your soul. Now, I'm just looking at this story 2,000 years removed. There's a part of me that goes, okay, if Jesus just simply laid that out, there would be a part of me going, okay, I've been following you. You've fed me. You've told me that I, I need more than just food in my belly. I need the craving in my soul to be, to be satisfied. And by believing in you is the only way to do that. Looking from the outside in, I would think, okay, that solidifies everything I've I need to know. That clarifies all the truth that I need to know. But what we're going to find out today is that after Jesus completely clarifies all that he wanted them to embrace, we're going to find out that rather than bringing a great deal of clarity and passion and commitment from the crowd, it brought a lot of tension instead. And what we're going to see today is that those people that had followed around Jesus, had seen the miracles, who had experienced the feeding of the 5,000, whose bellies were full, now these people, after Jesus made this claim, I've come from heaven and I'm the only one who can satisfy you, they don't turn to these hardcore followers of him, rather they turn into skeptics. You know what a skeptic is, right? Someone who goes, I hear you, but I'm just not... Sure, I believe. Now, I want you to think with me for a moment. Everybody look at me. We're going to read one of the most heartbreaking verses in just a moment in all of Scripture. But do you think that we have skeptics in our life? People who've been to church, they've heard the gospel, they know who Jesus is, they've, they've heard the stories, but they're just not Sure, they want to believe. And maybe that's some of you in the room today. So as we look at John chapter 6, there's really three things I want to see about the, the skeptic person. The first one is found in verse 41 and 42. If you have your Bibles, John chapter 6, 41 through 42 says this. So the Jews grumbled about him. Now, now remember, he just has said, I'm the bread of life. I'm the only one that can fully and finally satisfy the craving of your soul. And I've come from heaven. He just said that in verse 41. So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I'm the bread of life. 
that came down from heaven. Here's the first thing I want you to notice. The heart of a skeptic is a person that grumbles. Now, the word grumble here means to complain or to gripe. Now, I know none of you have that problem in your life, right? Do you know people like that? They complain and they gripe. About, how many of you know somebody like that? Come on. If they're sitting beside you, just pawn it off to somebody else, right? How many of you know people that complain and gripe all the time? Raise your hand. Okay, we know people. And if you're not raising your hand, we might be talking about you, right? So we know people like that. We, we've been around people like that. Now, why were they complaining and why were they griping? Well, think about it just for a moment. I mean, I, I want us to get into their heart and their mindset. Here are people who've been tracking with Jesus. He's just fed them. And they walked all the way around the sea to get to him again because it's morning and they were hungry again. And Jesus kind of calls them out. He says, what you need is not just belly for your food. You need food for your soul. And I'm the only one that can provide that. And oh, by the way, I've come from heaven. Now, the claims that he made is why they were grumbling. The reason they were grumbling is because he claimed to be from heaven, and he claimed that he was the bread of life. So when he claims those two things, what is he claiming? Well, to say that I'm from heaven is to claim that I'm God. I am God who has shown up. And to claim that I'm the bread of life, I'm claiming that I am the only path to salvation. Now think about this for a moment. If someone, if, you, if we were to have a large gathering, and someone showed up on the scene and said to you, hey, listen, I have come from heaven, and I'm the bread of life, would you be bothered by that comment? Come on, would you be bothered by that? Would you be skeptical of that comment? Sure you would. Now, I know some of you are like, like holy rose. Oh, no, I wouldn't. Well, yeah, I mean, but just think about it in the time it happened. Jesus shows up. And he says something that is unprecedented, and he says something that is totally unrealistic. And look what it says in verse 42. He said, is not Jesus the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? It's like, hey, look, we know his mom and daddy, right? We know the mama, we know the dad, we know his mother, we know his father, and yet he's claimed to be from heaven, and he's claimed to be God, and he's claimed to be the bread of life, the only for salvation. Okay, we know his mom and dad. This is unrealistic. This is unprecedented. So you understand why they were grumbling a little bit. Jesus knows their grumbling response. And look what he says. He says several things, but the first thing is found in verse 43. Then Jesus answered them, do not grumble among yourselves. So the first thing he does is he rebukes them for grumbling. He says, stop whining. Stop complaining. If you've ever had kids, have you ever told your kids that? If you have kids, have you ever told your kids that? Many of us have said it on a daily basis, Right? And if they have siblings, it's even, it's even larger than that, right? And so we understand that. And so Jesus, right out of the gate, he responds by rebuking them and says, stop your grumbling. Now, why would he say that? Why would he say that? It's because what they're grumbling about should be good news. You're grumbling that I'm God? You're grumbling that I have brought salvation and you can find it. And it's not just that you can find it in me, but I'm offering it to you. What I've said to you is really good news and you're griping about it. Really? So he rebukes them. And then it goes on, verse 44. Look what else he says. He says, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And then I will raise him up 
on the last day. So not only does he rebuke them, but he reminds them about true salvation. See, Jews in that time thought their salvation was tied to their lineage. Because their lineage traces back all the way to the nation of Israel, who God chose the nation of Israel. Therefore, our salvation is tied to our family tree. And Jesus says, eh, wrong answer. Salvation is not tied to your lineage. Salvation is tied to whomever the Father draws to me. And we know from the New Testament that Jesus, that the Holy Spirit is the one that draws all men to him. He says, so it's, it's not tied to your lineage. It's tied to those who are drawn by God. And those who are drawn by God and are taught by God believe. And because they believe, they're given eternal life. Now, why is he saying this? What I have said to you should be really good news. I'm offering you salvation. I am God in the flesh. And you're griping. Listen, your salvation is not tied to your lineage. It's tied to believing in me. And those who put their faith in me, I'll give eternal life. But he doesn't stop there. He keeps on. Look what he says in verse 46 through 47. Not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. So he, he rebukes them, he reminds them, and then he reiterates something. He reiterates only one person has seen God, and who is it? Come on, church, who is it? It's Jesus, right? See, for the Jews, they would look back to Moses as the, kind of the hero. Even Moses didn't see, see the Father, right? We know that in, in the book of Exodus, Moses had to hide in the cleft of the rock, and, it, and the glory of God passed by. And even the glory of God changed the very persona of Moses so that when he came off the mountain, something had changed about him. If he had seen the full glory of the Father, it would have killed him. He says, listen, I want to reiterate something from you. I am God, and I have seen the Father, and I have come from heaven. But he says one more thing to them, to these, these great skeptics who are grumbling. He rebukes them. He reminds them. He reiterates where he's come from. And look at the last thing he says. Verse 48 through 51 here. He says this. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that you may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that has come down from heaven, and if anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. Stop right there for a moment. So Jesus here at the end, he's rebuked them. He reminds them of their story of salvation. He reiterates with them the idea that, that, that he's the only one that's seen God. But then lastly, he restates the truth. I am the bread of life. Now what's he point out? Your forefathers ate manna that came from God, but they died, right? They still died, right? I mean, all of us, there's one thing that's true in life. Unless Jesus comes back, what's going to happen to all of us? We're all going to die. He said they ate manna, and physically they still died. Even though that was a gift from God for 40 years, God gave them manna every day. They still died. I'm offering you bread that you can partake in, you can receive, and never die. It's almost a parallel to the story of the woman at the well, isn't it? I'll give you water where you will thirst 
no more. What is Jesus offering the crowd? Come on, what's he offering them? Salvation. Here it is. And so if you're, if you're this crowd, you can kind of understand maybe why they're griping. Maybe why they're grumbling, right? But Jesus rebukes them to tell them to stop. What I'm saying is good news. He reminds them that, hey, listen, uh, your salvation is not tied to your heritage. It's tied to faith, and faith in particular in me. And then he reiterates that he is the only one that has seen God because he is God. And then he restates this truth. I am the bread of life. I am the living bread. If you want to live forever with the Lord, it comes through me. Now pause before we read the rest of verse 51. If that's where the story stopped, I truly believe there would have been a, ma- a multitude that day that go, okay, you know what? We've missed it. This makes sense. Okay, we're in. But that's not what happens. Look at the very end of verse 51. Jesus adds something that sends them from grumbling to a little bit more intense of a disagreement. Look in verse 51 at the very end. It says, and the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my what? Flesh. The bread that I'm offering is my flesh. Now, just real quickly, not to be gross for a moment, but if we're thinking in a, in a earthly mindset, if we're thinking in a temporal mindset, are you bothered by Jesus saying, the bread I'm offering you is my flesh? Are you bothered by that? Because that's called cannibalism, right? Come on, is it not? And listen, you may, you, this is not funny, but this is true. Early theologians wrestled with this passage because they thought Jesus was advocating cannibalism. But we know when we read scripture, that's not what he's talking about. When he says, the bread I'm offering you is my flesh, what's he saying? He's saying that I am physically going to die. My body is going to be beaten, bruised, and battered. And I and my flesh and my physical body, my flesh is going to be sacrificed for you. But here's a question. Were they thinking eternally minded like that, or were they thinking worldly minded? Worldly, because look what happens. The heart of the skeptic doesn't just stay as one who grumbles. The second thing I want you to notice is found in verse 52. Then the Jews disputed among themselves, saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? Now, wouldn't you love to heard that conversation? I mean, Jesus talking. I mean, and I think he was probably way more passionate than I am, or maybe way more just, he was that guy who probably, that when he spoke, I'm sure no words were ever wasted, right? And he's there, and they're grumbling about and griping about the fact that he said he's come from heaven, and he's the bread of life, and he's the path of salvation, that he's God. And so he says, listen, guys, just stop grumbling. This is good news. Come on. This is good news. And oh, by the way, listen, listen. I didn't remind you of something. That your salvation isn't tied to who you are as a, as a Jewish person or, or a former Israelite. It's tied to faith in me. And I want you to know that I am the only one who's seen God because I am God. I am the bread of life. But here's how I'm going to provide that salvation for you. By giving you my flesh. And oh my word. The grumbling changes into something else. And it's the second thing I want you to notice. Is that the heart of a skeptic is one that likes to argue. 
So they've gone from grumbling, griping, and complaining. Now they're in a full-out argument with each other. Now they're disputing one another. Why? Because there's half the crowd that goes, well, maybe there's truth, and maybe, maybe he is. And the other half's going, no, 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 no. How can it be that this guy is going to give us his flesh? That's just gross, right? How's that going to happen? Now, what I want you to notice is this. They were blinded by their own arrogance and their own ignorance. They were so temporal-minded, they missed what Jesus was trying to teach about. They missed the significance of the spiritual thing that Jesus was trying to lay out for them, is that he was going to let his body be sacrificed for them. Is that good news for us, that Jesus sacrificed himself for us? Yes, it is. Why? Because we understand the spiritual implication of what he's saying. They missed it. Now, oftentimes, I say this all the time, I would have just walked away if I was Jesus. Like, you know what? There's got to be some other people who are willing to listen to me. But he doesn't. And he responds to them. Look with me in verse 53. Look how he responds. Verse 53 through 59 says this. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, in other words, listen up, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, I live because of the Father. So whoever feeds on me, he also will live uh, because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died, Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Here's Jesus' response. They've been grumbling. He's clarified things. But when he adds at the end, the, the food I'm going to give you is my flesh, I mean, it, it just it all falls apart at that point, right? Now they go from grumbling to now they're just bickering. Now they're quarreling. Now they're disputing and they're arguing. And they're like, how can this be? This makes no sense. I'm sure somebody had to think it was gross. And so they're arguing about it. And Jesus goes, listen. Now, when Jesus gets their attention again, you would think this might be a place where he might soften his position. But actually, he becomes more demonstrative in what he's saying. So now it's not about eating my flesh. Look what he says. Verse, let's go back to uh, verse 53. Unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood. So now he's up the game, right? He's like, if you were offended before, man, you are flat out offended now, right? If, it, if I, what I said before bothered you, you're ready to have me crucified right now. Because it's not just about eating my flesh. It's also about drinking my blood. Now, come on, let's be honest. If you were in the crowd that day, would you be offended by that? Seriously, would you be offended? Would you at least have reason to pause? Like, what in the world is this guy teaching? Now, if they had been listening to him, he set this conversation up a long time ago. But what is he saying when he says, you have to eat my flesh and drink my blood? Well, we know the flesh represents the sacrifice of his body. And we know that the blood represents the blood that was going to, or the drink is going to represent the blood, the blood that would be shared that atones and covers our sin. And what Jesus is saying is, if you want eternal life, you must feast and you must feed on my flesh and on my blood. Now, what does that mean? Feasting and feeding means receiving, acknowledging, embracing. Are you with me on that? 
If I'm going to feed on something, if I'm going to feast on it, that means I acknowledge it and I am embracing. Here's what he's saying. If you want eternal life, you must embrace the fact that my body has to be sacrificed. You must embrace the fact that my blood has to be shed. Now, why is that important to the Jews? They understood sacrifice. They understood that if you wanted the forgiveness of God, there had to be an animal without spot or without blemish, sacrificed, and the blood that was sacrificed was used to atone or to cover for the sin. That's why the priest would go into the Holy of Holies one time a year and offer sacrifice for the entire nation of Israel. What is Jesus saying? I'm the perfect sacrifice. I am the one who ultimately is the perfect lamb of God, whose body is going to be sacrificed, whose blood's going to be shed. Why? So I can pay for your sins. And he calls them out. But he doesn't stop there. After laying out this whole notion about eating his flesh and drinking his blood, then he makes four additional comments. And he, he kind of lays, this is one of those statements, some statements where like where the rubber meets the road. Look with me, let's go back to it. Look what he says there. In like verse 54. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. And I will raise him up in the last days. For my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. What is Jesus saying? If you reject what I'm saying, if you reject the sacrifice and the blood that's going to be shed, and you reject it and say, I don't want any part of this, you will not have eternal life with me in heaven. Now, in today's world, that's extremely offensive, isn't it? If we tell people, you have to put your faith in Jesus, you have to surrender your life to Jesus, you have to surrender to him and let him be the boss and the master of your life, and that is the only way. Jesus is the only path to salvation. Is that offensive in the world we live in today? It is. So Jesus lays it out there. If you want to reject this, fine. But there's no eternal life for you. But those who embrace it, I'll give eternal life. And he says, did you pick up on that? He says, and those who embrace it and have life, I will raise them up on the last day. Those who embrace that he is the sacrifice, that he is the one that was going to die and shed his blood for us. And if you embrace it on the last day, I'm going to resurrect you. I'm going to take the dead bones of your body and reunite with the soul. And you're going to be equipped to spend all eternity with me. I will raise you up. And guess what? He says, not only that, my flesh and my blood is the true food and the true drink. What's he saying? My sacrifice is the only path to heaven. If you don't embrace this, you're missing the only path of salvation. So, Jesus doesn't like lay back, does he? I mean, he kind of like, he like, it becomes more demonstrative. Now, that leads me to probably one of the most saddest portions in all of scripture because you've got these skeptics, right? And they started with grumbling and then he says, hey, look, here's what I've done for you. Here's who I am. And they're like, oh, maybe okay. But then when he adds this whole idea that it's my flesh is the bread I'm offering you, now they're fighting. Now they're like, well, you've crossed the line, Jesus. And instead of him backing off of that, Understanding they've missed it, he just adds to it. Look, it's not just about eating my flesh. It's about drinking my what? My blood. I am the sacrifice you've been waiting for. And then look with me. The last thing I want you to notice about the heart of a skeptic is the heart of the skeptic. Not only grumbles, not only wants to argue, the heart of the skeptic, last of all, 
often walks away. Verse 60. Look at verse 60 with me if you would. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? Now, this word disciple here is a little bit different than what you typically think. The word disciple here doesn't mean, is not referring to an avid follower of Jesus. It's referring to someone who's attached themselves to a teacher. Now, why would these people have attached themselves to Jesus? Anybody know? The miracles, right? He just fed 5,000 men, not counting children and women. So you're talking 12, 15, 20,000 people. I mean, so they've attached themselves to Jesus because of what he can do. And so the, the whole idea of them being followers is not that they're, that they're really deep into following him, but they're fans of Jesus. They've attached themselves to Jesus. And they look to one another, and here's the comment they make. This is a tough thing to buy into, isn't it? This is tough. We hear what he said, but I just don't know if I can listen to this anymore. And then Jesus knowing that, look what Jesus says to them, because Jesus challenges them in verse 61. He says this, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, he said to them, do not take offense at this. Verse 62, then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are filled with spirit and they are life. The words I've spoken to you are spirit and life. Verse 64. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew that the beginning there would be those who do not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless he is granted him by the Father. Here's what happened. Jesus says, listen, I want to challenge you. Are you offended by what I've said? And how would the crowd have responded to that? Come on. How would the crowd respond? Are you offended by what I've said? Yes. Yes, I am offended. Don't be. Why? Because what he said is awesome, good, great news. Why? Because the sacrifice he would provide means the sacrificial system is no longer needed. That forgiveness of sin is a one-time deal. That when we put our faith in what Jesus has done on the cross of Calvary, dying on a cross, shedding his blood, when we put our faith in him, we are forgiven from past present and future. This is good. So don't be offended. This is good news. So are you offended by this? And they would have said, yes. So he challenged them. He also challenged them, hey, is it really going to take for you a miracle to really believe me? Did you pick up on what he said there? He's like, is it really, is it, is it, then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he came before? In other words, is it going to take you seeing me ascend back into heaven where I came from, before you really believe me? Are you really so tied to miracles and signs that it's going to take that for you to follow me? I know you're offended, but don't be offended. This is good news. Is it really going to take a miracle? Well, guess what? I've done a lot of miracles, and you still don't believe. And then he challenges them with another thing. He challenges them with this idea that his words have ac accurately depicted who he is. Look at me in verse 50. Five, for my flesh is true. I'm sorry, uh, 63. I'm sorry, 63. This, it, it is the spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. 
What's he saying? Listen, I know you're offended. I know you're skeptical, but you need to know this. Everything I've said to you is true. It's true. Everything I've said to you is true. But yet Jesus challenged them with this thought. With everything that I've said and everything that I've done, there's some of you who still just don't believe. Now, pause. Is that a sad statement to think about? There are people that God has blessed in this world. There's people that God has shown up in a powerful way in this world. There's people that have been exposed to the truth of what Jesus has done for them, and they still don't believe. Does that bother you at all? Does that bother us as a church at all? You know why it should bother us? Because for some of us, maybe that's our spouse. Maybe that's our grandparents. Maybe that's our neighbors. Maybe that's a family member. Maybe that's a co-worker. I mean, it should bother us that there are people in the world who've experienced maybe the truth of the gospel, and they still don't believe. And then look what happens. The first time in the passage, now the crowd responds back to Jesus. Look with me in verse 66. One of the saddest verses in all scripture. They respond by action. Here, look what it says. After this, after all has been said, many of the disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. They went home. I can't handle this too much. What you said is too offensive. What the implication of what you said, it just, I'm too skeptical. I mean, listen, they were so temporary, earthly focused, they missed the whole spiritual significance of everything Jesus said. And how did they respond to it? They went home. Can any of you in this room, can any of you in this room imagine walking, talking, being around King Jesus, watch him do all he would do, and ever have a thought where you would turn around and walk away and go home? Can any of you ever think about doing that? Come on, would you do that? Oh, they did. And I imagine that had to be a quiet moment, much like it is right now in the room. They just walk away. So literally, those who are bought in are watching people walk away. You talk about awkward moments as a teacher, right? Like it'd be like me talking, all of a sudden, half of you get up and just start walking out the door. Please don't do that, right? If you did that, I mean, that would just be an awkward moment, wouldn't it? But Jesus does something fascinating and leads me to the last point I want to make today. It's found in verse 67 through 71. Look with me. So Jesus said to the 12, do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of life and we have believed and have now come to know that you are the Holy One of God. And Jesus said to him, do I, did I not choose you, the 12? And yes, one of you is the devil. He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he was one of the twelve who was going to betray him. Here's the point. The last thing I want you to notice. We have the heart of a skeptic who grumbles, complains, and ultimately the heart of the skeptic who sometimes walks away. But here's the last thing I want you to notice. As it comes to Jesus, a choice has to be made. So what does Jesus do in this moment where people are walking away? He looks to his twelve and what does he say? Come on, what does he say? You want to go? My message is not changing. The path I'm headed down is not changing. Do you, are, you, are you in? Are you ready to walk away too? 
Because if you're going to follow me, listen, it's going to be unpopular to follow me. If you're going to follow me, it's going to be tough to follow me. If you're going to follow me, it's going to take a level of commitment like you've never experienced before. Are you sure you want to stay and be part of what I'm about? Or you want to walk away as well? And I think that's a message we should shout from the rooftops of the church today. Because there are many people, maybe even in this room, that you're a fan of Jesus but if times got tough, you'd walk away. And I'm asking you today, do you want to go too? See, following Jesus is not easy, is it, church? No. Come on, if you've been a follower for Jesus, would you say it's easy? Nope. Is it tough to follow Jesus? You better believe. Is it unpopular to follow Jesus? Yes. Does it take a higher commitment than you've ever known in your life? Yes. But what we've got to realize is we've got to make a choice too. Now, as we look at this passage, I want to end with this question to all of us. And here it is. Do we feel like sometimes we too have the heart of the skeptic? Maybe we grumble about things. Now, what would we grumble and gripe about as believers? Maybe we grumble and gripe about things that we don't understand. Why did this person die that was in our life? Why did this disease come into our life? Maybe we look at life and we don't have any understanding. We find ourselves griping and complaining and maybe today as a believer, you need to stop the griping, stop the grumbling, stop the complaining, and say, Lord, even though I don't understand, I trust you. I trust you. Maybe we're not the grumbling kind. Maybe we've come this morning and we want to argue. Maybe, maybe we're a skeptic who likes to argue. And maybe what we want to argue about is the hard doctrines of Scripture. Can I just tell you something? There is a lot of hard doctrines in Scripture. Can I get an amen on that one? In fact, when we really were unpack all the hard doctrines of Scripture, we might feel like the crowd did that day. We might wrestle with the same things the crowd did that day because there are some hard doc doctrines, and maybe we spend our time wanting to argue and to, to wrestle around, well, do I believe this or not? Maybe it's the doctrine about how we should just treat people. You know, the golden rule, treat others as you would have be, be treated, right? Or maybe it's about giving and tithing, and we don't like that doctrine. Maybe it's about lifestyle, because this book talks about where there's man and there's woman, and they're to be together for life, and that's the only thing that's acceptable. Maybe we look at the doctrine of homosexuality, we look at the doctrine of just fill in the blank. There's some tough doctrines in Scripture, but where we should come to as believers is not developing my opinion, but developing conviction on God's Word. Amen? And so maybe we want to argue because we don't like those doctrines. They don't fit our personality. They don't fit our belief system. Listen, my belief system comes right from here. At any time that my bias and my opinion steps in the way, may God rebuke me, chastise me, and may I go back to the belief of what Scripture says. So maybe you're like that, and you kinda, you're that skeptic who likes to, to argue hard doctrine. Or maybe you're that skeptic who's at a place in your life where you look at the world and you see the, the, what the world is offering, you see what the Lord is offering, and you kind of desire more of the world than you do Jesus, and you're thinking about walking away. I just want to tell you today, for all of us in the room, it's time to make a decision. I was going to bring an illustration today, but I thought I might get hurt, so I didn't bring it. So uh, I was going to bring two eight-foot stepladders. So if you can imagine me too, and as soon as I said that, most of you that know me go, yep, he would definitely would have got hurt today. So if you can imagine two eight-foot stepladders that go up like this and come down. So can you, are you visually with me right now? Are you with me? Okay. So if I were to step on those stepladders, the bottom rung, representing the world and following Christ, I mean, there, there's some decision, but I, I have my foot in both worlds. But as I climb that ladder, there's going to be a point quickly 
because my lack of flexibility, there's going to be a point where I've got to make a choice of which ladder I'm going to get on, right? Because there's going to come a point where I can't be on both ladders, and I've got to make a decision. I've got to embrace one ladder or the other. And I'm just saying today, some of us have got to make a choice. You've got to embrace one worldview or the other. If you don't know Christ as your Savior, you're either going to embrace the world or you're going to embrace Christ, which is going to be this morning. If you want to embrace Christ, it's so easy. It's about just saying, Lord, I know that I'm a sinner. I believe you died for me and shed your blood to forgive my sin, and I give my life to you. I surrender. It's that easy. Or maybe as a believer, we've been trying to walk in both worlds, and we're grumbling, and we're arguing, and we're thinking about walking away. Listen, we need to stop grumbling and start trusting. We need to stop arguing and start buying into and believing the truth of Scripture. And we need to stop thinking about walking away. It's kind of like in marriage. One of the things I do in premarital counseling is I tell every couple, the worst thing you can ever do is to put divorce on the table. Don't ever put it out there. Don't ever give yourself that option. Because if you do, it's always going to be on the table. And I'm just telling you, some of us are trying to walk in both worlds, and we need to take it off the table. And say, you know what? I'm 100% going to live for Christ. So what choice are you going to make this morning? So right now, everybody stand if you would. Everybody stand. Every head bowed and every eye closed.